0: Your Bibles to Psalm two. Psalm two. I've um, a couple of times, I guess, in the past, when we have breaks between uh, sermon series, um, have stopped and kind of preached a psalm. Until now, have been a little bit sporadic. I guess we've done I don't know three or four psalms uh, in in that sort of setting, that sort of context. Uh, This morning, we will look at Psalm uh, 2. It's our practice to stand. You know this uh, when we read God's Word, so let me ask that you stand as we uh, read this passage together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears and minds and hearts to hear and understand and embrace your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The church could die. I mean, the church could fade away into some distant memory. It could come to an end. It could reach a point where the church just was no more and and the world wins and the church is gone. I don't know if you've ever had those thoughts. I don't know if you've ever you know, kind of scratched your head and watched the world around you and wondered if maybe that really is true. Is it possible that the church could just completely disappear? Is it true that the church could die? Surely some of you were thinking, we need to get this guy out of the pulpit now if he's actually suggesting that the church could come to an end. Uh, but the rest of you, you watch the news. And, and you, you see when Supreme Courts make decisions that are absolutely contrary to God's will and to God's Word. Our country celebrates what the Bible condemns. There's pressure from every direction not just to accept what other people do and lifestyle choices that they make, but to approve of them and not call them sin. Uh, States pass anti abortion laws, and immediately, before the ink is dry, they're challenged in court and held up for years. And that's just in the U.S. Surely you've seen in the news that pastors in China are being arrested, and churches, they're doing the state is doing everything they can to board up churches and to to close them down, to, to shut them down completely. In a lot of ways, it seems like we're being surrounded. That the church is the target. That the real goal of the culture, the world in which you and I live, is to, to squash the church and to get rid of it so that the church loses, the church dies. Uh, you can embrace anything. You can accept anything as long as that isn't Christianity. Psalm 2 instructs us Uh, As we bite our nails, as you sort of scratch your head, as you pull your hair out, as your palms get sweaty, as you get nervous watching the news, as you get scared, wondering what's the fate, what's the future of the church, Psalm 2 is your instructor. And and first, we see in Psalm 2, we're reminded that the kingdom of Christ, the church, can't fail Look at the first four verses. Notice there have always been people who oppose God and His plans to have a kingdom on the earth. And and notice the language used, particularly in the first couple of verses, the nation's rage, the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. Rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed these rulers these kings these leaders they seek their own glory they want their name praised they want their name honored and glorified they want their name up in lights they want the statue of them of them of, and their you know their decrees and stuff to to be the things that people obey they seek their own kingdom of course, if you're if you're going to establish your own kingdom, uh, in the words of the great philosopher, poet, Ric Flair, to be the man, you've got to beat the man. Well, the reality is if you're going to have your own kingdom, if you're going to set yourself as the ruler above all other rulers, you have to cast off the one who actually is the ruler over all other rulers. Rulers. The nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers have set themselves together. They've united around a common enemy, and that is the Lord and His anointed. Nothing will unite enemies like a third party, like another enemy that you just want to get rid of. In fact, notice the language. Uh, They use in verse 3, let us burst the bonds, cast away the cords. It's bondage language. These these rulers are using language of God's rule in my life is oppressive. It's like being in prison. I'm bound to with these these bonds and these cords. I'm held captive. I'm restrained and constrained by the Lord and His anointed. And I don't want that. So we're going to break these bonds, cast off these cords, and be free of His rule and reign and authority in our lives. We read just a few minutes ago Acts chapter 4 and in Acts 4 um, the reality is Luke Peter, Luke as the author of Acts, Peter and John and their friends with whom they go pray once the Jewish leaders tell Peter and John no more teaching about Jesus they go back to their friends and say hey look this is what they said and they say okay let's pray they prayed the first couple of verses of Psalm 2 they said hey David already told us that there would be people who opposed the Lord and His anointed. And look, Peter and John, you just faced them. You were just right there in the room with them. They see Psalm 2 as a description of what the Jewish leaders uh, conspiring even with the Roman authority, So there you go. rule Nations, peoples, rulers, kings conspiring, taking counsel together, the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities who hated each other could gladly work together to get rid of Jesus. In their minds, a far greater threat, a far greater enemy. And now these Jewish leaders are saying to Peter and John, no more teaching about this Jesus guy. No more teaching in His name. In other words, Peter and John tell us. Peter and John in Acts 4, they tell us that what David writes in Psalm 2, the church has always had her opponents. The church has always had her enemies. We've faced them. Of course, you and I can look back on history and go, where are those Roman rulers now? What ever happened to them? They're gone. You don't don't go visit the Roman Empire anymore. Like that's not a thing you go visit. But when you and I go on vacation, there's always the church. It still stands and the very people who conspired against the Lord and His anointed are gone. The people that crucified Jesus are no more. And yet the church still stands. The church has always had her opposition. The second thing we see in this passage, not only has the church always had her opposition, but the reality is it can't fail. And so the question is, why not? Why is it the case that the church, that the kingdom of Christ can't lose the psalmist. David tells us in Psalm two. Actually, gives us two reasons why uh, the king his kingdom can't fail. The first is the promise of the Lord's anointed. Notice what happens in verses four through six. I, I'm sure. Look, I'm. I know there are a million movies that would have serve to illustrate this perfectly. I couldn't come up with one. My kids will give me a list this afternoon. You don't have to email me. I won't pay attention to it. But let's assume, let's pretend this illustration works just as fine. Let's assume for a minute, I know this wouldn't happen, but just humor me. It's just for the sake of illustration. Let's assume you've got a, a four or five year old son. And... You've taken a toy away from him and he's gotten angry. Or you won't let him do something he really wants to do and he has gotten angry at you. And he keeps escalating in his anger until he finally yells out as his dad, I'm going to beat you up. It would be hard in that moment not to laugh. You're trying not to because you've got a child to punish. You've got a disobedient child who's throwing, you know, violating the fifth commandment. We've got all those sorts of issues. Okay, let's save that. That's another sermon. That's another sermon illustration. But it would be hard in that moment not to, really to go, you're five. And I may not be in the best shape of my life. But you're still five. I'm pretty sure you're not going to beat me up. That's how God reacts in verse 4. Let's cast off the cords. Let's break the bonds. God laughs. Why? Because it's ridiculous to think that there's a king or a ruler, an earthly king or a ruler, who could, I don't know, throw off God's authority and rule and reign over all of creation. It's impossible for an earthly ruler to so rebel against God as to put him to death, eliminate him, and take over and kill his kingdom forever. God responds with laughter in verse 4. Remember the Tower of Babel? They thought they could build a tower that would get them up to heaven. Hey, let's, let's build a tower. Let's go up to God because we can do that. God simply said, well, this is easy. Confuse their language. The tower never was finished. They couldn't communicate. They couldn't talk to each other. And that was it. Herod and Pilate and the chief priests in the greatest act of rebellion of all time thought they could just kill the Lord's anointed, wash their hands, and be done with it. And yet he who sits in heaven laughed. And Jesus defeated even the grave. And then notice in verses 5 and 6, our this this response, God's response to their rebellion. Keep in mind, of course, they have their throne because God has given it to them. Proverbs 21 tells us that. Romans 13 tells us that. They are in the position they're in because God has given it to them. The heart of the king is like a a, a stream of water in God, saying so he directs it wherever he wills. And these kings rulers respond in rebellion against God and he mocks their puny little rebellion uh, that they think is gonna be um, establish their own kingdom. He says then that he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The response to these kings casting off the bonds of God's authority is I've already set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Zion is so frequently, especially in the Psalms, it's the church. Uh, Zion was originally a, a little 11 acre plot of land just outside of Jerusalem, uh, it is now a worldwide global church. God's response is, there's already a king on that throne. The implication, of course, is you can't take him off of it. I put him there just as I put you there and only I can remove. He's permanent. You can't knock him off of that throne. David's writing. He's not writing about himself. He's writing about yet yet... Greater King. He's writing about the Lord's anointed, not Himself as the current temporary King over Israel, but the greater King, the Messiah. He's talking about Christ. So the first way we know that the Kingdom of God is permanent is that is this, this promise of the King. Promise of the Lord's anointed. That promise is there, verses 4 through 6, to encourage and comfort us in the face of rebellion all around us. But there's a a second reason for the the permanence of the kingdom of God's anointed. It's not just the promise of the king, but it's also the promise to the king. Because in verses 7 through 9, we actually get a a glimpse into a conversation between the Father and the Son. David is writing he's a a thousand years or so before Christ would come. And yet, verse 7, sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. That that sounds like an echo of what the Father said to the Son when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3. It sounds like an an echo of what the Father said to the Son on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. And for that matter, we know in Romans 1, verse 4, the greatest declaration of Christ uh, to be the Son of God was the resurrection when He conquered and defeated death, our last enemy. But notice that verse 7 is in the past tense. You've said, the Lord said to Me, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. And for that matter, He says, I will tell of the decree. I'm going to tell you about the decree that's already been issued. In other words, you and I are actually learning about a a covenant between the Father and the Son in eternity past. We're learning about the eternally begotten Son of God to sort of steal the language from our Westminster Confession of Faith. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Father and the Son have, have entered into a covenant together to accomplish our salvation Part of that decree, part of the decree, the edict is issued by the Father to the Son, we read in verses 8 and 9. The Anointed One will possess the nations and the ends of the earth. It will all belong to Him. And He will say, Father, give me the elect. You will say to me, I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them like a rod of iron and death, uh, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The, fa- the Son asks the Father for the elect and the Father grants them to Him. Ask of Me and I will make the nations your inheritance. In other words, The kingdom of Christ can't fail. The church can't fail because the Father has made a promise not just about the Son, but to the Son that the kingdom will be His. Are you worried that the church might be shrinking? Do you watch the news? Do you read the reports? And you start thinking... You know, if the church really is shrinking and it really isn't, oh my goodness, is it going to last? Are we in trouble? What's going to happen? Is the world really getting darker? Are we coming to the end? Is this all going to fail? You do realize in verse 8, that actually gives you a glimpse of what the sun is doing right now. What's the Son's job? Having accomplished our salvation in His life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, what's He doing now? Is He just eating bonbons on the beach waiting for this all to end? He's actually interceding for us. You read this in Hebrews. We could have sung, Arise, my soul, arise. He ever lives above for me to intercede. The Son intercedes on our behalf even now. Notice this language the Father says to the Son, ask of Me and I will make the nations. You get a glimpse that the Son is actually praying for you. He's actually praying that you would be preserved. He's actually praying, hey Father, there are still elect that have not yet come to faith. Would You change their hearts? Would You bring them to saving faith? Would You grant them Your Spirit? And would You send Your Spirit to them now and Your Word that they might come to faith in Christ? He's merely asking for the Father to do what the Father has promised to do. The Son asks the Father for His people, for the elect, and the Father grants them to Him to be His possession. In other words, you're reading about total, complete, guaranteed victory. Christ cannot lose we even ask in our shorter catechism how does, the Christ, how does Christ execute the office of a king the answer comes back Christ executes the office of the king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies did you hear that the enemies of Christ are the enemies of the church the enemies of the church the enemies of Christ. He's at war with them. He's fighting the battle on behalf of His kingdom. The church can't fail. Why not? Because of the promise of the Lord's anointed and because of the promise to the Lord's anointed. What would, what would be an appropriate response to... This reality. How would you expect? What would be a right response to the truth of the permanence of the kingdom of Christ? Well, according to verses 10 through 12, the only right response is humble submission. Notice the language of these last three verses. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. It's a, a reference really to bowing before Him, getting on your knee and kissing that signet ring that, that is the, the testimony of His rule and reign over all of creation. It's a sign of, of total, complete, humble submission to Christ. Incidentally, this is why Psalm 2 comes after Psalm 1. Okay, I know the math part. Humor me. Psalm 1 asks, who's your king? Psalm 2 asks, who's the king of everything? Psalm 1 asks, are you governed by the decree of Christ, which is His Word? Oh, and by the way, Psalm 2... Christ actually rules over everything. There is no greater king than He. He's the one over who rules over all that is. He's the, the ruler of time and space and history and, and all the world. So it makes sense then that the first question of the book of Psalms would be, who's your king? And that the second would be, oh, and by the way, be comforted. The king who is your king is the greatest king. Over all the earth. Kings rule by their decrees. Kings kings rule by the edicts that they issue, and that's exactly what we have in God's Word. That's Psalm 1. Kings rule, the King of, of, of Christ, our King, rules over his creation, over all other rulers. be warned, be wise, serve the Lord, rejoice with trembling. His his rule and authority over our lives and over the world in which we live gives us joy and a weakness in our knees as well. Because He really does rule and reign over all that He has made. I don't know if you noticed or not. If I were writing Psalm 2 about me, I'm okay through the first nine verses. But verses 10 to 12, I would write differently. I would come down a little more heavy handed. I'd want to drop a hammer on these kings and rulers. I don't want to drop my fist on these kings and rulers. That's not the way God writes His word, thankfully. There's an air of patience in these verses. There's an urging, there's a plea. There's not a or else. There's not a hammer down. There's not a, I said, and if you don't do it right now, I'm going to zap you. I'm going to crush you. I'm going to, That day is coming, yes. But it ends with a plea. Blessed are those who take refuge in the Lord, even if you're a king or a ruler who has in your past set yourselves against Me. Even if you're one of the ones who put to death the Lord's anointed verses 10 to 12 have an air of of God's patience. He delays not out of weakness, not out of inability, but in patience, in love, in mercy. Believer be comforted. The kingdom of Christ cannot fail. It will not fail. Why not? Because of the promise of the Lord's anointed, the promise to the Lord's anointed, the only right response is to bow in humble submission to Him. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage. First, this psalm is a comfort to those who tend to worry. You watch the news, you watch reports, you see what's happening uh, to pastors in China as they're being thrown in prison. Uh, you watch as the, the the country you and I live in uh, does everything it can to push Christianity and the church into uh, darker, deeper corners of society. This passage is a comfort to us. you struggle with fear you Struggle worrying that the church might actually get stamped out. Psalm 2 reminds you that can't happen. Fear not, believer. That is not a threat. That is not even in the realm of possibility. A second application simply this. Have you kissed the sun? Have you bowed in humble submission and taken his signet ring in your hand and given it a kiss as if to say, I submit wholly and completely to you? Have you turned in faith and repentance to trust in Christ and Him alone for your salvation? Let's pray.